This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. <laughs> Welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is Will the Thrill. Hello, everybody. And TJ2, the deuce. Howdy, howdy. Yeah, hey, hey, hey. So uh, there's a reason why uh, Mr. TJ2 did not crack open his usual drink. We do have a trigger warning on this episode. This episode is going to be dealing with not only addiction, but suicide. And if any of those things trigger you guys, please, we completely understand if you turn this off and join us next week where we talk about Christina Grimmie. That, that's pretty much it. We do, we do know that that's a very heavy subject. We know a lot of people, especially right now during quarantine and the holidays, we're dealing with a lot of things right now. But we certainly don't want anyone to uh, feel alienated or uh, be put into a, a place that is not mentally healthy so we completely understand if you guys cut this one off and then uh th- this week we uh we lost someone that it, it just totally sucks that we lost oh, we lost does. darth vader we lost david prouse yeah he was the body for darth vader he right was, the physical yes, form he was the physical form Jeez. of darth vader i believe he was a weightlifter is that correct i think he's a yeah, professional bodybuilder yeah, pro- bodybuilder yeah really yeah yeah, yeah. wow so he wouldn't have wouldn't have picked a professional bodybuilder for um darth maybe <laughs> uh maybe for chewy but yeah, like well, I was like seven feet tall. Yeah, it? Peter Mayhew was like seven four or something crazy like that, and they they were talking about how he actually got the part because he was sitting in his chair when uh, George Lucas walked into the room and he went up, he stood up to shake his hand, and he looked from the chair all the way up the wall to almost the ceiling, and he's like, "I think we got our Chewie." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a terrible loss because. Star Wars at this point is not just a part of of your childhood. It's a it's it's essentially a part of your life, an ongoing <laughs> an ongoing part of your life. It was childhood the last movie. Especially. We we the last movie that we saw before lockdown was the Rise of Skywalker. Mm-hmm. That was yeah. the last movie. Was like that is forever encapsulated in like normalcy. That was almost a year ago. Because we don't make it to the theater a lot because it requires putting on pants and everybody knows I don't like doing that. So yeah, but but yeah, like Star Wars, I won't say it was the first movie I ever saw, but it was certainly one of the first movies that I saw. You know, because it came out in seventy seven, so it came out two years before I was born. So I know that you know you probably were watching it when I was in the cradle. Return mm-hmm. of the Jedi was the first movie I saw in theaters. Wow. Yeah, I think the last. The last movie I saw before quarantine, COVID lockdown, was probably "Honey, I Blew Up the Baby." <laughs> I don't go to the I don't go to the, the I don't go to the theater very often. It's been a while. 
That's why I give Ashley, that's why I give Ashley a Christmas present every year of taking her to the movies. Right, because I don't. Um, <laughs> hey, there's one other R.I.P. I want to throw out there. That being Hal Ketchum. Oh my God! Country yes. artist, country artist from the '90s had I think 17 top 40 hits, most from early '90s to about '99, 2000. Oh, um, he was such he was such a good songwriter, and he was such a gifted vocalist. He stood out. You know. People have very strong opinions one way or the other about 90s country. At the time, I worked in country radio, and a lot of people thought, this sucks, this is all pop and rock and roll, and I don't like... Compared to what we have now, it's a freaking gold mine. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest. And I mean, I I don't hate everything now, but there's there's not a ton that I love. I know, uh, LD, you like a little more than I do, but of of what's out there right now, but... I mean, mean, like, maybe Florida Georgia line... Which is I know you like them, and there's a few others. I, I mean, I, I like Lady you know, Chris Stapleton, and um, I like um, Sturgill Simpson a lot, and um, a few others. But um, Casey Musgraves, huge fan of her. But oh, she's great, yeah. Uh, but but you know, early mid '90s is actually I think it's a little uh, maligned unfairly because there was actually still a good bit of variety available for you. You had the the traditional sounding people the, the neo the neo traditionalists they called them alan jackson clint black randy travis people like that and you did have people like shania twain that were bringing in pop sounds and you had like travis tripp bringing in like a southern rock vibe and but people like the mavericks doing like tejano and some cuban sounds and we kind of weaving that in those to me it was still a good bit of variety how ketchum sounded like a 70s singer songwriter he sounded like james taylor yeah absolutely yeah and he had that yeah like you said that cadence of sort of the i don't want to say folk but that sort of no that's no that's that's very that's very accurate and uh, interesting he was from new york Mm -hmm. i think he's from greenwich new york and he is his his entire career is a study in persistence and not giving up on your dreams. He was at it for twenty years before he got a record deal. Oh, jeez! He was a carpenter. Wow! Who who would play shows wherever he could play shows, making a few bucks if he could make it. I'm just gonna say, if you can listen to the song "Small Town Saturday Night" and it doesn't sound like where you grew up, <clears throat> and you don't recognize any of the people in that song, and you don't hear yourself in that song, you're not from a small town. <laughs> it's it is a perfect summation of growing up in a little tiny town where there's nothing to do, and the line about how the world drops off at the at the edge of town and stuff like that. It's 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 phenomenal songwriting. When I saw that he passed away, that's one of those that like I was sad that he passed away and i was equally sad that more people didn't realize how bad that sucked because <laughs> yeah. he was such a talented dude so and yeah then, r.i.p to him and then you get like the tit for tat though and when you find out dolly pardon helped fund the covid vaccine uh-huh so there's that i'm not i'm not convinced she's human <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not convinced that there are human beings as good as she is at Gosh, she at is- being a person I feel like we might have a three-way fight to who gets her episode, but I, I do feel like if it comes down to bare knuckle brawling the two of you, I'm gonna win. For Dolly, I, I could see <laughs> that. Dolly, You'll fight dirty. But Dolly, Dolly, don't ever die. Someone please wrap her in bubble wrap and keep her in Fort Knox, full of whatever she's eating right now and whatever she needs, because damn, she's a gem. She's a national treasure. I've said it before, she, and I'll say and, it again. She is, uh, yes, an absolute national treasure. And and can I just say one uh, one funny line before we jump into a, a pretty dark and pretty serious episode? Sure, sure. Um, you know, I mentioned Casey Musgraves. 
Did you see the crossroads that she did with Katy Perry? No. No. Okay, they did, you know, CMT has a show called Crossroads where they take a country artist and a not country artist and they just throw them together and they do a concert. Huh. In the in the court in the course of doing the show, Katy Perry referred to Casey Musgraves as Dolly Parton with smaller boobs. <laughs> That's a pretty high compliment. That is very big. And a tremendous compliment, and it's accurate. In terms of like being it. a songwriter, it's dead on the money. Yeah. Nice. So uh and then I guess the last thing to like wrap up is that yes, I did open up my Etsy shop. Yep. I'm so yeah. excited. I got my first order from someone that wasn't a friend or family member, yeah, which is kinda awesome. That is awesome. So uh, it's called Cinema Sense, and it's movie-inspired candles. So what do I have? I have uh, The NeverEnding Story. I have The Goonies. I have a Supernatural line. So if any fans of Supernatural are on there, because you guys know I'm a Supernatural fan. Uh, we have Gone with the Wind. We have Steel Magnolias. We've got a Christmas line that's happening right now. So we've got White Christmas, A Christmas Story. No, not A Christmas Story. Christmas vacation. Christmas vacation and Scrooge. Scrooge is my personal favorite, not just for the film, but for the scent as well. And then for Disney Files, we have uh, The Little Mermaid, and I also have Love Actually, which could be considered a Christmas candle. So you can actually hey, check out my Etsy shop. Have you um have you gotten to work on that Soylent Green candle yet? <laughs> you know, I'm so close. Actually, if I were going to make a Soylent Soylent Green is people! <laughs> I would actually, people. I'd actually make soap you know, like a la Fight Club. You call it to serve man. And yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. the recipe like they said they would. It's still people. <laughs> people. Mom mom keeps throwing out like movies that she likes. She's like, but, but you need to make a Peggy Sue Got Married candle. I'm like, yeah, mom, but what does Nicolas Cage smell like? What was the crust you got? Oh, Labyrinth you got today. Labyrinth. Yeah. Somebody asked me about Labyrinth. And I'm like, eternal stench is not really a great sell for a candle. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, maybe David Bowie's cod piece? I don't know. Well, that goes to places I'm not sure about. <laughs> All right. Well, oh, I'm sure it's been to a lot of places. You're <laughs> I bet it has, yeah. <laughs> Too many to name in this limited broadcast. Hey, oh. Yeah. Hey, oh. so I hate I hate shifting the fun, but uh, we are going to be talking about a darker subject today, guys. So yep. Yep, yep. Uh, buckle up because this is going to be a rocky one. And this is, this is one of the um, rare episodes that we're going into where I know almost nothing about the person, to be honest with you. Right. I, you I'm obviously I'm familiar with the band that he was in. Absolutely. They broke, I, I want to say, like my senior year of high school, freshman year of college, somewhere in that range, early mid 90s. Because I, 1993. Remember, I remember putting Hey Jealousy on a mixtape mm -hmm. when I went yep. to a ski trip with the youth group from Purity Presbyterian Church. So mm -hmm. had to be around that time. Yeah. One thing I can um, promise all of you is you will never hear that song the same way again after this. Episode. And the thing is, I actually, yeah, they're kind of a, a band that's a, a little bit forgotten or people just kind of look over them a little bit. They had a, they had some really good songs. Oh, I really totally. liked a lot of their music, to be and honest. Funny with you. enough, I know you're not a gamer whatsoever, T, but I love horror based games. And there was supposed to be a game that was that was named after a Jen Blossom song called mm -hmm. Allison Road. And I was so song. excited. It's a great then, song. That's one of my then, favorites of theirs. Yeah. And then the, uh, the game company folded, I think. Right. Yeah. They uh, were trying to do something with the rights and they fell apart and it just got ugly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, the gin, the gin blossoms are part of my, my, my childhood. Yeah. And as you said, TJ, everyone knows that, you know, you can't, but this story was one that really, I was unaware of until I started the research, which was brought to us 
by a listener. So, so as part of our housekeeping series, we would like to thank. Thank you, Christine. Christine contacted us. She had a whole bunch of great things to send over that helped us with the research and really, again, opened my eyes to this artist that, like you, I knew almost nothing about. And now my, my perception has totally changed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, very familiar with the band that he was in, although the little bit you've told me about what's to come here, he wasn't around for their success, really. Yeah, so. it's, uh, it, it, I mean, when you talk about gone too soon, I know that gets said a lot. We're talking Olympic fragments of a second of when, you know, he got there and then lost it. It's just, uh, I, I don't want to say anymore. It's just, there's a lot to, to unpack here. All right. So uh, as you know, we're talking about the Gin Blossoms, and I want you all to picture something. That's a good song, too. They have a song on one of my favorite film soundtracks mm -hmm. of all time. Which is? Which is the Empire Records soundtrack. Mm -hmm. They sure do. Till I Hear It From You. Till I Hear It From yeah. You. So that, yep. I think, about when I was, like, I really began to appreciate them, so. Yeah, and now we're going to hear a whole lot more to the story. So I, I want you all to picture something for a moment. Just, just. Play this out in your head. You are the member of a newly successful, I mean, nationally successful band. You have a song that's topping the charts. You're touring the U.S. You come back to your hometown. You go back to the bar where you got your start. And it's where you used to play. You know everybody. You are walking through this bar and suddenly someone jumps out and punches you right in the face. That happened to Gin Blossom's frontman, Robin Wilson, 1993, Tempe, Arizona. Flannel is in, the 80s are out, and now alternative music is on the scene. And the song that you would have to be living under a rock to have missed was the Gin Blossoms, Hey Jealousy. For those of you who may not remember just how popular the song was, it was 25 on the Billboard Top 100 and number four on Billboard's mainstream rock list. And it still gets played to this day. Mm-hmm. In this bar called Long Wongs, it was known for two things. One, the best wings in Tempe, Arizona. I've never been there, and, I can't say. And two, a very funny name. And <laughs> So I guess it's three things, really. Okay. The third is that they had musical acts seven nights a week, and this was the place that basically all the local acts would play. It was called Long Wongs. And it is where the Gin Blossoms and Robin Wilson got their start and in 1993 it's the fall give or take they return home and everyone's excited to see them because tempe is a town that loves tempe i don't know what your experience is with tempe but when i went there for business a couple times the local pride is immense and it's not quite to that obnoxious level but it's definitely not understated people are extremely proud of being from tempe and things from tempe and I don't know if you know the old George Carlin joke. He used to take the stage, and I think the most popular one was when he did it in What the Hell Am I Doing in New Jersey? He uh, gets up on stage, he holds up his glass of water and says, I assume the water is still safe to drink in. In this case, it was New Jersey. And, of course, the crowd goes, no, and boos. And, and he says, I do that joke everywhere, and I've yet to hear somewhere say, yes, enjoy some of our fine local water. It is pure, and it is good. <laughs> uh, oh, George Carlin, I love you, but that's not, the, that's not where we're going. Tempe is really the closest thing I encountered to that was they would be like, yes, the beer is great. You will love it. Our wings are fantastic. You will love them. And of course, their music. And as I did my research, I found that this band and this artist are highly respected in the so city. It's, it's a very Texas vibe. 
I, I could see that. Yeah, I could see yeah. that. Yeah, folks, and I, 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 I love the state, love their food, love their music, but folks from Texas love them some Texas. Oh, they do. Well, you know, T, growing up in our little town, the best thing that we had was the sour cream from the cyclone. That stuff is good. Oh God! It was, that was awesome. the, oh, it was that's the best sour cream there's ever been. I don't know what they do to it. I don't it's even. Incredible. I, don't, I don't know, but whatever it is. I, and I, and I, I would have to say, to a lesser extent, folks from South Carolina like being from South Carolina. They love them because I'm South Carolina. Oh yeah. Oh no, I'm I'm so proud to be from South Carolina. I'll Not punch somebody in the face if they talk about my state. Seriously. Oh yeah, no. If somebody if somebody tries to fake a southern accent, I'll be like, okay, number one, that's. You're, you're a terrible person. Number two, that's how we talk. It's actually the closest thing to perfect English that you can get. So mm-hmm. you know what? Suck my balls. Which is funny because in New Jersey, people say they're either from New York or Philadelphia. So I experienced <laughs> the exact opposite. There. Wow. Yeah. So, needless so, they're, so, they're, so this is kind of a homecoming for them. Though. This is Some a homecoming. Yeah. And, yeah. So I think the last thing Robin Wilson expected was for someone to punch him in the face coming out of the bathroom. But that's what happened. And he gets hit. He has no idea what's going on. And he just hears someone saying, you skeeving son of a bitch. And he knows the voice. But again, he's really out of it. Turns out that person who hit him and was then dragged out of the bar was former bandmate, former songwriter, Doug Hopkins. Wow. So that was the last time Robin Wilson or the members of the Gin Blossoms would see Doug ever. Now, I know what you're thinking. It's probably the same thing Robin Wilson was thinking, sitting there rubbing his face, is how on earth did this happen? You know, how did we get to this point? And this guy was part of our band. You know, he was with us. He ate, breathed, and slept music. And that's going to be our subject for today. And like I said, when you say that someone has gone too soon or they missed out, we're talking just a hair's breadth. And it's so tragic to go through what happened to our subject and just how it all played out. And in the end, we're really going to show you the true villains in this story. So special thanks again to Christine for pointing this out to us. It was the opening of a subject we're going to dive into now. And I'm going to tell the story warts and all. It's a memorial to the man who wrote songs that reached millions beyond his untimely death. And now we honor the life, music, and legacy of Douglas Owen Hopkins. Born April 11th, 1961, in Seattle, Washington. Doug is the son of parents Nancy and Lewis Hopkins. And it's unbelievable to think that's the most I found about his young life. There is nothing that I could find that's documented about his time growing up in Seattle. Really, all that's stated is when he was very young, the family moved to Tempe. That's all you get. Yeah. So it's it's crazy. I don't know when that happened because, again, the time frame isn't clear. But based on what we get from Doug, there are a few things we can surmise about his young life and sort of how he developed as, uh, into a young man. First is Doug that was actually quite shy and insecure, and he was described as, quote, physically awkward. Now, this comes with love from a writer. I mentioned him in our, you know, off-recording dialogue about a piece that was written by Brian Smith of the Metro Times in Detroit, which is just a blistering piece on Doug Hopkins. It's incredible. Brian knew Doug personally. They traveled together. His account is really unlike any, anything else. And I will tell you, it's a bare knuckle article. It's language warnings, content warnings. I will throw them all out there, but I'm going to suggest 
you read the article. Here is his description of Doug Hopkins. He had these, well, first he starts off with, and again, language warning here, fucking Hopkins. He had these long, flat boat feet attached to long legs. His arms were long, his fingers were long, everything was long. He was tall in every way. His mind moved faster than his feet could take him. Clumsy as hell, his hasty gait got him tripping, running into things. And the guy couldn't see too well. He had a giant nose like Pete Townsend. So there's your description of Doug Hopkins. I mean, the nose like Pete Townsend. Mm -hmm. How you doing? (laughs) Super flattering. Uh, Yeah, but he did have one actually quite rare and defining feature. In one of his eyes, he had what's called a fractured iris. Interesting. Which is not done by injury. It's actually done naturally, but it's very rare. It's where the iris itself is actually split into two and has has two different colors. Oh, that's awesome. So it's, yeah. it's kind of like a more exotic David Bowie kind of thing. Yeah, it was a heterochromia. No, so, like, so, so two two colors within a single iris? A single iris, yes. Oh, wow. No, uh-huh. I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever seen, I mean, Bowie obviously has his, the different colored, it appears to be different colored eyes and his is from an injury, but yeah. I don't think I've ever seen a person with a multicolored single iris before that's interesting and it was really again extremely rare yeah i I haven't heard of a case either and it was something that quote the girls loved but doug was extremely self-conscious about it in fact in a lot of the pictures you see of doug he's actually got his hair combed forward almost into his eyes and he often wore sunglasses to cover him up yeah oh okay okay ld showed me a picture of it now wow okay is that cool that's not the most flattering portrait that was just painted by a guy who knew him or was friends with him or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So that's one thing is we can surmise that Doug was probably a bit insecure. Uh, the other yeah. is that he was a just natural reader. I seem to cover a lot of people that enjoy reading. Yeah. Uh, Doug was actually quoted in later interviews as citing works everywhere from children's literature all the way up through poetry, both classical and modern. He actually cites Dr. Seuss. L. Frank Baum. He said his parents had a collection of all the L. L. Frank Baum Oz stories. And we saw his uh, headstone. Yep, it's in um, Glendale, yep. Mm-hmm. A. A. Milne for poetry. He had William Blake, Lewis Carroll, and he even says that at the tender age of 11 or 12, his mother gave him a copy of J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye to read. There's that's, another a, that's, a good book. that's a good book for an 11-year-old to uh, yeah. dig into. <laughs> but he, he read it. So he was an avid reader. And the third was that he suffered from depression even as a child. That may have stemmed from his low self-esteem or a possible social anxiety. There's also some theories out there that Doug may have suffered from from being bipolar. Uh, However, he was never officially diagnosed, so we can't say. All we do know is he did battle depression, and that would sadly continue throughout his life. Uh, What we do know about Doug is that he did go to Tempe. He attended McClintock High School. That's where he started music, and he met a lot of people that will be key later on in his life. Doug actually picked up an acoustic guitar his senior year and started taking lessons. But he had these big, awkward hands and these long fingers, so after a few lessons, his instructor said, uh, you ever thought about playing the bass? And um, Doug was like, no, but I'll, I'll do it. So he takes up the bass. And he actually- well, but, took- but aren't long, generally aren't long fingers helpful in terms of playing any stringed instrument? One would think. So what I was saying was that having the long fingers might be detrimental to a guitar because you have to move so quickly that the longer fingers might be harder to jostle with. Whereas but didn't didn't Hendrix have long fingers? Joe Satriani, I think, has very long fingers. 
it, they may have it. I think the thing was that uh, with a bass, maybe it's because the strings are thicker. I don't know. Or something. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't yeah. know. Obviously none of us is like a musician musician, but right. I'm, I'm, I'm the furthest I'm, and I'm the furthest of the three. So. <laughs> so, I mean, whatever the reason, that's the instruction he got and he basically ran with it. And it was actually documented that Doug never went out on Friday night when he was in high school, he would stay home and play his instrument. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> Didn't go partying. He wrote songs. So he started that at an early age. And he was pretty much focused on music. And he met a gentleman that's going to come up a lot through the course of his life. And that is Mr. Bill Lean. They were high school friends, both interested in music. But they clashed because Doug was a big fan of classic rock. That's what he sort of grew up with. And Bill was a punk fan. So the two would get back and forth and have debates. And they even said around senior year, they're like, hey, we should form a band one day. So Hold that thought. In 1979, Doug graduates McClintock High School in Tempe, Arizona, in spite of what is labeled the Jim Shorts incident. And I couldn't find anything about this. Apparently, something involving Jim Shorts happened with Doug in his last, like, end of the school year, and he was suspended for two weeks, which put his graduation in jeopardy. If anyone knows this story, please hit us up on socials. I am dying to figure out what happened what? with the gym shorts? What an odd thing. I know, but there's no there's nothing about it. I want to know more. Yeah, that's very interesting. <laughs> so Doug wanted to continue his pursuit of music, and he enrolled at Mesa Community College. However, Doug wasn't interested in classical music, really what they focused on. So here's a direct quote from Doug. I didn't want to be part of the Lawrence Welk Orchestra. <laughs> what they were teaching just wasn't relevant to what I wanted to do. They thought classical music was the only relevant music. So Doug does what any budding musician would do. He leaves, goes to Arizona State University, and studies sociology. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Yeah. Um, and in that time, yeah, he can pursue other bands. His first band that people really associate him with was called Fountain Hills. Now, we are going to get into a run here of great bad band names. I know that's a thing on our show. You're going to get yes. some awesome contributions today. What what have we decided is is the standard bearer of crappy band names so far? Is it the Eternal Triangle? Is that the worst? Eternal Triangle is the one that sticks with me the most. It's bad. But literally before, the last thing that Will said to me when we went to bed last night was he, he literally turned to me and went, Harry Webb and the Spiders. <laughs> and that was it. That was all I said. Terry Webb and the Spiders is bad on so many levels. So if, if, if let me tell you, if those are the two front runners. We one of them may be dethroned today. That may happen. We'll see. Eternal Triangle. You're gonna have to work kind of hard to dethrone the Eternal Triangle. We we've had so many that were so very terrible. <laughs> yeah, there's some yes. bad ones coming yes. up. You guys are gonna love it. Uh, so this one was called Fountain Hills. <laughs> Whatever. That's yeah. fine. And it was very apparent that Doug didn't want to play any covers, which was rare because, well, which was not going to work because this was a college cover band. So Doug not wanting to play covers really meant that his time there would be limited, shall we say. Music, said Doug, was always more important than the lyrics. He would write the words to fit the music that he wrote. He said, I try to write about things that a lot of people can relate to on a personal basis. Some of them are obscure, but most are pretty obvious. I make a point never to write about a girl or a love song. Oh boy, is he going to break that promise. Ah. Oh boy. So what happens that year is his friend Bill Lean gets a bass guitar for Christmas. And he wasn't quite sure how to play it. 
So Doug steps up and goes, hey, this is great. I play bass. I'll teach you to play bass and I'll play guitar. We can form a band. Uh, Doug certainly wasn't qualified to teach anyone at this point. And Bill had been playing the thing for all of five minutes. So they did what they thought was the logical thing to do. And that's form a punk band. Okay. There you go. Well, not not knowing how to play your instruments would be a benefit. Yeah. <laughs> so in 1980, and here's where it starts, Doug and Bill go back to their high school friends from McClintock. They pull in a guy named Doug Fry, a drummer, and a gentleman named Richard Flowers to be on vocals. However, Flowers lasted uh, what is apparently not a long period of time. He was replaced by Jim Swafford, and we have Doug's first band, Moral Majority. All right. I actually kind of like that name. Okay. Moral majority. That's It's it's better than whoever, whoever, and the whatever. Hey, yeah. There are so many of throughout history. It's a step in the right direction. Uh, <laughs> so moral majority was a mix of now covers and original songs. So now Doug could bring in you know, some original pieces, but the infighting was constant. They were always battling over who, do, who wrote what, who was going to do what, and he and Bill were clashing stylistically. So... And, and bear in mind, this band, the most tenured member of the band, music-wise, is Doug Hopkins, who had been playing for under two years. Oh, wow. Um, the newbies had been playing for as little as six months. So the musicianship was not exactly up to, say, the level of Rush. But Doug jumps in. He's a, as a coach, a songwriter, and even a band manager. There was a local band in town that was very popular called The Jetsons. And he approached them personally because he knew they played out seven nights a week, multiple shows, and they needed relief. So he said, hey, can we be your opening act? And the way they got this was they, he, they said, great, you know, we'll come to uh, listen to you guys play. You can audition. Well, the only place that was available was Bill's parents' house. So they set up, did an audition for the Jetsons, and became an opening act <laughs> at Bill Lean's parents' house. Moral Majority was now getting out to the bar scene. And there were a lot of local venues they started in, such as the Mason Jar and Merlin's. We'll get to Long Longs in a bit. But as we pointed out, there was conflict, and in the end, the band lasted only about a year. They only wrote a handful of songs, which included Jerry Doesn't Like It, Living at the Handcock Building, and apparently they recorded a version of the BYU Fight Song. You're probably dying to hear these, aren't you? The BYU Fight Song, when, yeah, probably. I actually would kind of like to hear that one. Uh, regretfully, we never will. They booked uh. a local recording session at Blue Studio, and the recordings never saw the light of day, so I'm sorry, everyone. Those God. are lost in time. Come on, Blue Studio. Reach out sorry. to us. Yeah. Gosh. Lost in the annals of time, so living at the Hancock building will be a mystery. The band was, of course, punk-based. Bill was a supporter of that, and Doug didn't want to play punk, even though he really was trying to build his skills beyond that. But I'm going to quote one of our recent subjects, Mr. Neil Peart, who said, you may be a total punk, but if you play that thing every night, you're going to get better. And that's what Doug did. Moral Majority officially splits in 1981. Doug Fry and Jim Swafford walk out, but Bill and Richard stay behind with Doug Hopkins. And they start to play around with the new music that's coming in, which is, of course, New Wave. And in 1982, they form the Psalms. And this is where Doug puts the sort of line in the sand and says, we are done playing other people's songs. So after being in one band, he makes the declaration that he will no longer play covers, which is interesting. Hey guys, we got to take a short break for our sponsors and we will be right back. And we are back. Let's get back to Doug Hopkins. Now again, Doug is sort of the old man of the group. He's all of 21 years of age and he's kind of coaching and mentoring the players. So he decided they needed a synthesizer 
So he solved this by teaching Jim Swafford to play the guitar, again, maybe not the best idea, while he played around with the synthesizer. And they had a few headbutts on musical direction. So they break up in 1983, but they get back together. They go to the studio and they actually hash out an LP. The Psalms, which is the name of their band, had composed a total of 22 songs. Doug wrote 20 of them. Wow. Like Alexander Hamilton. I know, right? <laughs> he wrote the other 51. <laughs> the Psalms were able to keep their gig as an opening act for the Jetsons, so they were playing around the Tempe area. The EP came out, and Doug wasn't happy with it. So I think he was a bit of a perfectionist, too. I think he was, like you said, his, like uh, the previous writer said, his, his mind was moving faster than his feet would, which is a good analogy for a young musician who's, you know, rather impatient. And it was really tough to schedule gigs and rehearse because other people had jobs and all this stuff. He had classes. So he describes it this way. He said, when you see the band, you're seeing two hours of fun. The other 22 hours are where all the work is. Wow. That's a quote from Doug. Despite his issues with the recording, it actually gave the Psalms local buzz in the media. And they were invited to, I love this station, 98 KPUD, KPUD, <laughs> which is a local Arizona station, Arizona Rocks, 98. And they did an interview with Mary McCann, who was a DJ. Now, the best part about this interview, which I strongly recommend you all look up, you can find it on YouTube, is that it starts like a train wreck. The moment she introduces the band, they respond with one word answers. She goes, here's Bill. He's like, hey, and here's Doug. That's me. And you're just thinking, this interview is going to go nowhere. This is going to be a train wreck. And then they start talking about the music. And that's where it takes off. Where Doug points out the fact that one of their songs on the album was inspired because he read William Blake's Proverbs of Hell and basically gave it to the rest of the band as homework and said, each of you write something about this. I'm already writing one. Huh. He went on to cite the works of Rambeau in A Season in Hell and poet E.E. E. Cummings on the title track of the album, which was No Great Cathedral. Not, not Rambeau, though. Not, not yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, that's funny because I never have thought of Rambeau as being particularly well-spoken. Being poetic, yeah. I'm not trying to save him from you. <laughs> no, I'm not trying to save you from him. Now, different Rambo. This is a, a French uh, spelling. Okay. Uh, it's guessing. over, Johnny. <laughs> it's over, Johnny. <laughs> oh, boy. So it's interesting because you had these guys who look like they really rolled out of the back of a punk van, and they're talking about literature, which is kind of what Doug was. He was really smart and intelligent and well-read. He actually says in the interview, we were the most literate band in Tempe, which isn't saying much. Right. Most, <laughs> most bands drink and go to bars. We drink and go to the library. Yeah, hey. but, but where you're from, isn't there a bar called the... The library? The library? Or is it the office? The office was the one office, of me, yeah. yeah. So we have a, I'm actually going to share with you one of the songs from this album. This is from No Great Cathedral, which was released in 1983. And this is, of course, by the Psalms. This song is 100 Summers. Oh. 
time brought me the frightful laugh of an idiot. And there you have it, the Psalms with huh. Richard Summers. Not bad. Yeah. Yeah. We we were as it played, we were kicking around that sounds likes, and we we uh, threw out what modern English, Pet Shop Twins, and Flock of Seagulls. Pet Shop Boys. Yeah. But very British New Wavy. You can hear that. Yes. Yeah. Right. But yeah. That that's that's a definite influence you can hear. And I don't think you would have picked four guys from Arizona. When you I would not have guessed they were from Tempe. No. Yeah. <laughs> so, here's a little offering, again, written by Doug Hopkins. Now, the band, of course, didn't last. These psalms were broken up in 1984, and that was the same year that Doug said, you know what, I'm going to finish my studies at Arizona State University and then get back to music. So, he graduates with his degree in sociology. In 1985, he goes back to doing what he does best. Doug created another band. This one is called Algebra Ranch. <laughs> no. Yep. yep. No. Oh, that's hum- oh, that is humorous. Algebra Ranch, yep. Uh, he took one of the members of the Jetsons, the singer Damon Dorian, and he tried to bring back Richard Flowers and Jim Swafford, but neither of them went with it. So he had to get all new talent. He gets a drummer from locally, he gets a guitarist locally, and starts writing songs. One of the songs was actually called Twelfth Night, inspired by Shakespeare. Shakespeare's work, yeah. The other that was notable from this time period was Angels Tonight, which would actually go on to be on the Gin Blossoms first album. Oh, nice. Which we're several years away from. So they carried that song through. They carried a bunch through. That was one of the main ones. Okay. Now, think about what's happening at this time. This is 1987, 86-87. And what's going to start happening is we go out of New Wave, and then we get this kind of fork of rock where you get sort of that hard grunge, and you get alternative. And one of the main influences for Doug at this time was actually R.E.M. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. And R- yeah, although it's... Interestingly, this is before REM was a really big deal. Yes, before they hit big, yes. But they were still around. Yeah, they, oh, they were around, but I mean, yeah, I, he would have heard, I'm trying to think what REM would have put out by that time. Radio Free Europe. The Green um, Album was 86, right? So maybe out of 87, I think. 87 or 88, actually. So he's, they, uh, uh, so what, Superman... Um, Radio Free Europe. I'm trying oh, to think but, some of their really early songs. Yes, I Am Superman. That's oh, a great song. Yeah. But that's, yeah, that's probably what he was hearing. Maybe right. finest work song by that time. I, I, I would have to go look, but. Well, R.E.M. is. It would have been, been very early R.E.M., so he, he obviously glommed onto them kind of kind of early in their existence. Yeah, and I mean, and a lot of people forget R.E.M. was around since the 70s. I think their first album came out in 1970, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to tell you about a fun incident here. In 1985, Doug actually goes to an R.E.M. concert with his then-girlfriend. Her name is left out specifically because of what happened. First of all, she had been unfaithful in the relationship, which Doug knew about. They had an argument at the concert in which she karate kicked Doug in the face. Oh, my God. (laughs) And he gets taken... He gets taken to the hospital... With a shattered cheekbone. Good lord. Damn. Yeah, so that's 1985, which puts things with a algebra ranch on a bit of a pause. So he was dating Ronda Rousey? I mean, like, I'm <laughs> yeah, trying to figure out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what in the crowd? 
You karate kicked him in the face? Yep, in the face. And broke his face. Pretty much, yeah. Yes, she she broke his face. Yep, and his... Holy crap. So, around this time, Algebra Ranch kind of fizzles because Doug is laid up in the hospital and the band's not really gaining any traction. And their name is stupid. (laughs) Their name is Algebra Ranch. Their name is horrible. Oh, no, wait. It gets better. 1986, Doug founds another band, which is also to be short-lived, the 10 O'Clock Scholars. (laughs) God. That sounds like a really crappy YouTube channel. (laughs) Yeah. So in 1986, he starts another... This is four now, I think? He started four. At least. Yeah. He gets Bill Lean and Jim Swafford back on board. So, you know, maybe the last one, they're like, okay, we'll sit out Algebra Ranch. But, you know, we're in for the 10 o'clock scholars. Yeah. How, well, how, I mean, with the name like that, how could you turn him down? <laughs> yeah, how could you say no? So they form the band in Tempe, at which point Doug decides, okay, we've got songs, we've got material. I'm going to L.A. to promote us. So he gets in the car with the writer, Brian Smith, and they are in L.A. However, it didn't quite turn out the way they planned because a few things happened or didn't happen. One is the trip was really just an extended drinking binge. They just go hog wild, spend all their money on booze, and have a series of failed meetings with some record executives who feign interest or show partial interest, but they come back with nothing, basically. While he's away, the scholars kind of look around and go, um what are we doing so they actually dissolve the band informally and they all move up to portland so doug and bill find out when they get back hey your band's in portland um what are you guys doing now the band actually contacts them and say uh we can't write songs so doug is like yep that's kind of my thing let me come up to portland we'll see if we can figure this out so they take a bunch of songs from algebra ranch that includes angel tonight that one's coming back dream with you and as you may have guessed unfortunately the 10 o'clock scholars didn't quite make it nobody's talking about hey jealousy by the 10 o'clock scholars so at the end of a short stay in the portland area doug comes back his band is broken up his girlfriend kicked him in the face he's totally broke now because he's been traveling all over the place and really not working outside of music so he's hitting a bit of a low point so a few things come out of this era some negative and some positive this is really where Doug starts to drink beyond the level of what is kind of, you know, rock star partying. And people are starting to get genuinely worried about him. He's actually not eating. Instead, he's spending his money on booze, what little he has. His bank account's virtually empty. And he's just kind of living in Tempe, you know, cheap apartments, just trying to get by. His life is pretty much going not where he wanted it to. However, this is the period where he's taking all those influences from R.E.M. And this is, again, 1986-1987. We're going to see the rise of that alternative movement, which actually included that, quote, jangly sound that R.E.M. got into in the 90s, uh, also popularized by bands like Toad the Wet Sprocket. Um, I think Hootie even sort of picked up the mantle in the mid-90s, if I'm not mistaken. And that brings us to our next song. This one comes to us, yes, from Algebra Ranch, but it's been redone several times, including by the Gin Blossoms. I have a a quick question for LD. Toad the Wet Sprocket, great name or awful name? Awful name. Great name. You know what it's from? Uh, I do, actually, yes. Yes, you do. What what is it? TJ, enlighten us. It's uh, from... It's Monty Python, yes. Yep, Mm mm-hmm. 
I liked Toad the Wet Sprocket. I thought they were great. So the song I'm going to play for you guys tonight is actually from the Gin Blossoms later release because I had little luck turning up the earlier releases from, you know, the fine band that was Algebra Ranch. Here is Angels Tonight, again, written by Doug Hopkins. Absolutely. Yeah. And he wrote it with Algebra Ranch, redid it with the Ten O'Clock Scholars, and then it actually became a Gin Blossom song. So, and, but, but tell me, listen to that guitar line. That could easily be out of an REM song. 
easily. Yeah, very. Yeah, you can. Not now that you've said that, I can definitely hear the similarity. Mm -hmm. Now, my question is, with it's the legality because we've been watching a lot of uh, Legal Eagle on YouTube Mm -hmm. because it's a very funny uh, channel. Uh, Can he do that? Do what? Because he's in. He's a member of the band. It's his song. It's his song, so he has the rights to. I guess they're not big enough at any point to really worry about like the rights to the song. Yeah. But when it was sold over to the Gin Blossoms and they're recording it, we're we're gonna get to that. It's okay. uh, that that goes into a very. We'll we'll get there. We'll get okay. there. But uh, yeah, actually, they cited uh, REM guitar player Peter Buck as one of his big influences, which makes a lot of sense. So he's now, as you had asked me, TJ, what band is he in? The answer is none at the moment. He had just finished up with the 10 O'Clock Scholars. That band dissolved. He's home in Tempe. He's living in an apartment which was described amazingly by Brian Smith as having a dirty mattress, cigarette burns. The power had been cut off, so the only way he got electricity was by running an extension cord out the window to the utility station at the back. Oh, wow. Poetry books everywhere. He had a single lamp, and he had a guitar that was electric, but he had no amp because he had to pawn it. And he was, as per usual, on the verge of eviction. Jeez. Yeah. Wow. And it's in that apartment. He's sitting with Brian. He's strumming this unplugged electric guitar. And these are the lyrics he shares with Brian. All last summer, in case you don't recall, I was yours and you were mine. Forget it all. Is there a line that I could write? Sad enough to make you cry. All the lines you wrote to me were lies. That is found out about you yeah his lyrics are if you take them out of the poppy kind of really you know mainstream sound the gin blossoms have that's dark yeah and well the- and, and and then you almost wonder is this based on um the girl who cheated on him and karate kicked him in the face the same the same okay his his writing as we'll learn is highly biographical i think there's two approaches you can take to this one is, I think, TJ, you put it best, the John Prine approach, where he observed the world around him and had so much right. empathy that he could write a song about being a divorced middle-aged woman and it would be convincing, you know? Right. Uh, I think Doug is the other way, which is you take your personal experience and kind of package it in a way that people can relate to it. Um, the late Carrie Fisher said it best, LD, you'll like this quote, take your broken heart and turn it into art. God, she's... Carrie Fisher. She, I love her so much. I, she's a... Not to get too far off topic, but she has written three of my favorite books. Mm-hmm. She was outstanding. Of, of anyone. And that's not even including Postcards from the Edge, which I haven't been able to read yet. But I'm getting there. Phenomenal. Around this time, he does get a new girlfriend. And this is a sticky situation. Remember Jim Swafford? Well, yep. he starts dating her his sister, Kathy. Great. So keep that in mind. File that one in the back pocket. In 1987, Doug has been writing songs. He feels better about where he wants to go musically, and he forms the Gin Blossoms. The original lineup consisted of his friend Bill Lean, who just keeps coming back for more, a gentleman named David McKay, who quickly drops out. So they pull in Jesse Valenzuela. That name is going to be familiar to those of you who are Gin Blossoms fans. Richard Taylor is a second guitar player, and Chris McCann jumps in on drums. So you may be wondering, who's the singer? Well, the answer is Jesse Valenzuela. You may also be wondering, what does the name Gin Blossoms actually mean? I think... Well, I, I think uh, this, one I, this one I know. Okay. I, LD, you want to take this one? Is it 
What happens to your face when you drink too much? TJ, do your you nose. Read? Specific, specifically your nose. It yeah. is specifically the nose. It's the red splotches or dots that appear from excessive drinking. If you drink, uh, I, and I don't, I, I don't know why people pick gin as you know to go with it, but it, pretty much anything. If you drink a lot of liquor really fast, generally you'll get a red stripe across the bridge of your nose. Mm-hmm. Because I think I think the skin there is really thin, and there are a lot of like capillaries or something there that burst yeah. pretty easily. Yep. Is that like even if is that like a long period of time, or is that I mean like okay, who's more of a candidate to get a gin blossom nose? You who's been drinking, you know, since you were twenty one, and me who hasn't had a drink. <laughs> twenty one. <laughs> 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 I don't know if mom listens to this podcast, okay? I don't think she knows how to work the internet yet. So <laughs> it's really triggered by chronic drinking. I mean, yeah, I, but I but I I would also say that uh heavy binges of drinking in yeah. short periods of time will also induce one temporarily. Now and you're correct, that that is what it, it has is. nothing to do with this this one has nothing to do with Eric Idle. No, nothing to do with Eric Idle. Com- coming up with the dumbest name he could think of. No, not this time. Uh, It can also be brought on by rosacea or a skin condition, but namely that's what it is. And it was apparently a very appropriate name because, oh, they were drinking. A lot of the bars would actually pay them in booze instead of money. Um, In fact, sweetie, you can't pay your rent in booze. I think this is, you can't, but I'm going to tell you, I think this is actually pretty common because a cousin of mine was at South Carolina when Hootie and the Blowfish were actually in college and i think i think the deal to get them to play at like your frat party or whatever was like a hundred bucks and a keg <laughs> nice fair so nice. I, I, so so i mean you're only talking they're only making like 20 25 bucks a piece but a keg but a keg of beer yeah right so uh lead singer robin wilson had actually said a lot of these places we should have sued them for payment before they got shut down so in many cases they just got straight up stiffed uh, so Robin Wilson is the voice everyone knows. What's going on there? Well, he's not an original member, as you may have figured out by now. At that time, he was actually working for Tower Records. I remember that store. Mm-hmm. And he called it a, quote, in language warning here, shitty job. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a skateboarding buddy with Doug, and he liked to sing and also play guitar. Now, Richard Taylor, who was the guitar player of the original lineup, had some run-ins with the law. Uh, He was actually out on probation come 1987 for drug violations. So this led to an interesting sort of position for the Gin Blossoms. They had several monikers that they would perform under so that they could avoid that legal issue. So if someone knew who they were and Richard had a rap, they may not let him play the bar, but they used different names to throw people off the scent, which included Captain Crunch and the Del Montes which they positioned themselves as a fictional family in which Doug took the name Otis Del Monte. Wow. So there you go. The first... Okay, I'm just out of curiosity. <laughs> what, what year are we talking here? We are in 1987, sir. 87, okay. Yep. 1987 Christmas Day is the first documented appearance of the Gin Blossoms under the stage named Captain Crunch. They played at okay. the Mason Yard. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of interested. Uh, the reason I asked what year it is is because we're only a year away from the Traveling Wilburys at this point, which was a band that used fake names, and one of them mm. was Otis. Really? Yeah. Huh. huh. Interesting. 
but yeah, he was he went by Otis Otis Del Monte. Apparently. Okay, interesting. Um, and one of the singers was nicknamed Elvis Del Monte. It was a whole routine. So they get to the point where the Del Montes, again, still the Gin Blossoms, would regularly play at Long Wongs. Again, wings, live music. And that's where Robin Wilson liked to hang out. And it was a haunt for local musicians. Some other acts there included Hans Olsen, Chuck Hall, Walter Richardson, all local Tempe acts, and of course, the Gin Blossoms. Uh, for anyone wanting to go there, it's unfortunately no longer an option. Long Wongs closed officially in 2004. Aww. Yeah, sorry. In 1988, Richard Taylor is released from the band. Unfortunately, he could not kick his drug habit, and he amounted some more parole violations, so they found themselves short a guitar player. At that point, Jesse Valenzuela was still the lead singer. So Doug brings in Robin to play guitar, but they find out, hey, this kid can sing. So Jesse shuffles over to backing vocals and rhythm guitar. Uh, Chris McCann leaves. They bring in Phil Rhodes. And Robin Wilson takes the helm of lead vocals. And that is the lineup of the Gin Blossoms. Everybody knows. Official as of 1988. It isn't until 1989 that the Blossoms released their first album, Dusted. It wasn't widely distributed. It was made in Phoenix and had 12 songs, seven of which were written exclusively by Doug, the others by Doug and a combination of other people, including Jesse, Robin, and whatnot. These songs included Lost Horizons, Angels Tonight Comes Back, and Found Out About You. Yay! Yeah, the one we all know. Now, that was kind of a shock to me because I originally thought that song came out on New Miserable Experience, which we're going to get to, but it was actually first released on Dusted, which was the Jim Blossom's first album. Yeah. Interesting. And around this time, another song made the album. I'm going to share with you some lyrics and see if you can pin this one down. Tell me, do you think it'd be all right if I could just crash here tonight? Oh, oh. We have a taker? Oh, Ooh. I know. Yeah. I know. I know. I I'm pretty. <laughs> yes, you are. That song, of course, is Hey Jealousy, which was written about his then and what really was the whole time they were together, rocky relationship with Kathy Swafford. And it was also at this point that the drinking got to levels that Robin Wilson described as an absurd cartoonish level of access. Of, I'm sorry. Robin Wilson described as an absurd cartoonish level of excess. It wasn't uncommon for us to order 57 shots to the stage during a show. Jeez. Good God. Crackers. Wow. Yeah. Oh. So they I mean, we've, we've talked a lot uh, in the course of doing th this podcast about people drinking an obscene amount of, of alcohol. I think that we had the, how many Bloody Marys did the Rat Pack order in a single performance? It was a hundred and something. Two. 63 or something, yeah. It, it was it was an obscene amount, and then you would have, you know, John Bonham walking into a bar and ordering 20 Black Russians, yeah. hammering down the first 10. Yep. And then and then proceeding from there and then um Keith Moon just some of those some of the outlandish tales of his, but goodness gracious, man, that that's crazy. That's five five guys, mind you, 57 shots in during Yes. Jeez. Uh, so they're playing the local bar scene. It's about 1989 at this point. They actually book a gig at the South by Southwest Festival, which mm -hmm. takes place in Austin, where lo and behold, they are discovered by an A&M executive, nameless for a reason. And they're finally offered the record deal they've been trying for. So again, they've been around since 1987, and Doug has been kicking around for 
almost what six seven years prior to that uh, at least yeah. yeah they finally get a record deal so the first thing that comes out is an l uh, sorry an ep called up and crumbling kind of a funny name angels tonight comes back for that one and a song that i was on the fence about playing but i'm like nah i'm gonna play it that song is an open letter that doug wrote to adult film star kelly richards and that song <laughs> is the one i'm gonna share with you this is kelly richards originally appeared on 1989's uh, up and crumbling i'm sorry 1990's up and crumbling album but it was then re-released by the gin blossoms here is a song to that adult film star So Kelly Richards, again, written by Doug Hopkins, performed by the Gin Blossoms. I mean, it's very indicative of the Gin Blossoms, if mm -hmm. you know anything yes. about them. That is that is their signature sound. Like, if if I was in a, a bar or a store or a restaurant and that song came on, 
I'd be like, yeah, this is the Jim Blossoms. I don't know the song, but this is totally the Jim Blossoms. Mm -hmm. Yep. No, it's them. Uh, funny story. It was recorded in Tucson. Apparently one night Doug was taking the bus home and he, for some reason, thought he was going to Tucson and he missed his stop and he wound up in Tucson. He was supposed to be in Phoenix, which if you know that geography puts you about two hours by car outside of Phoenix. And in trying to get a ride home, he was picked up by a gentleman who took him to his house and presented his lover because they thought he was a sex worker. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, oh, need, needless to say, Doug politely declined and uh, found another way to get back to Phoenix. Huh. So as a funny story I heard in some one of the interviews, I just thought I'd share that one. So we are now in 1991. Big turning point for both Doug and the Gin Blossoms. This is the point where Doug's drinking is really starting to impact him. Uh, his health and his performance are starting to decline. Robin Wilson recalls studio sessions where Doug would often arrive late, and sometimes when he arrived, it would be at the end of the day, and he wouldn't be able to even do anything. And he's not even 30 at this point, right? No, no, not yet, no. Because he was born in 60, I'm trying to remember, two? He was born in 1961. 61. 61. Okay, so he's he's approaching about 30 at this point. Yeah, but... yeah almost 30. Yeah. Uh, his on-again, off-again girlfriend, Kathy, says, I'm going to leave you if you don't get your drinking under control. And it's starting to eke out into his writing. So this leads us to a controversial point and sort of something that's going to set the stage for what happens next. You all know the song, Hey Jealousy. And everyone knows the iconic line, you can trust me not to think and not to sleep around. That was not the original line. Doug penned it, you can trust me not to drink. And Robin Wilson forced him to change it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Robin had said, quote, I'm tired of singing about drinking. So you can always see a rift here. Now, don't get me wrong. There's genuine concern about Doug at this point, because it's, again, starting to impact him physically, which if you're under 30 and that's happening, that's not good. That's not good at all. So A&M flies the Gin Blossoms out to Memphis to record their next album, which will be New Miserable Experience, by far their most notable album. Tensions are really yeah. rising at this point. Um, it's getting to the, it's sadly getting to a point where Doug can't function with the booze and he can't function without it. If he doesn't have it, he gets the shakes, which for a guitar player is lethal. You can't right. shake. But if he has the booze, he's getting all the symptoms of excessive drinking. So the band is really not quite sure what to do at this point. And this is so sad because they're on the verge of their giant breakthrough. He's been at this for t 10 years ish yeah. at this point. Yeah. He's yeah. dedicated. I mean, he was sleeping on a dirty mattress with cigarette burns on it and with yeah. no power and uh, all this stuff. And that they're, they, it's, he's so close. Yeah. And he's so close to, he's to, finally right. living the, to finally live in the dream. Right. Yeah, absolutely. He's, he's knocking on the door. So what happens at this point is they say, Doug, we're worried about you. They basically send him home towards the end of the recording sessions. They were there for about two months. They send Doug back to Phoenix. Now the story gets really convoluted. The band members, including Robin Wilson, said they just couldn't watch him do this to himself. They said he was destroying himself. He would come in and he would be covered in mouthwash and aftershave because it was covering up the smell of the booze. Yeah. He was physically, I mean, he had stomach problems, liver issues, and they said, we're about to go out on tour. This guy's going to die. That's one take on what happened. At, at, at 29 or 30. Yeah. 
he, he, he had such a pronounced problem that if he didn't drink, think about how much you have, how deep in you have to be that. Yeah. If you don't drink, you're getting the shakes. He needs a drink to hold a guitar at this point. I know yeah. it, it sounds crazy, but I believe it was the guy who played the wizard in the wizard of Oz. Uh, the case that was with him in all the shots were actually filled with liquor because they said that uh, if he didn't drink, he was a terrible actor and a mean oh, person. Oh, wow. And and so they would encourage him to, to have the booze. You know who was like that also, speaking of Monty Python, was unfortunately Graham Chapman. Yeah. By the really? end, he was, he was so deep, yet he couldn't even do anything without getting sloshed. It was just... Jeez. And that's where Doug is at, at 30 years old. That's that's what it sounds like, yeah. 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 So that's one account. Another says that A&M stuck it to the band and said... You get rid of Doug or we pull the album. Uh, they said that it's basically recorded, and if you don't get rid of this guy, we're going to shelve it. It's never going to see the light of day. Another account is that Doug was actually thrown under the bus by his fellow band members. I don't know which of these actually happened, so I'm going to make that very clear. These are three different takes on what happened. All we know is that they did send Doug home from Memphis to Phoenix, supposedly to get treatment for his alcohol addiction. He gets back there only to get a call from the band saying, we have to let you go. Wow. We've replaced you with a guy named Scott Johnson. He is going to be our touring guy. I'm sorry. And the we've, album. We've, we've had to let you go from your band. From your band. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And the band, the Blossoms, the Gin Blossoms will then go on to release that album, New Miserable Experience in 1992, and do a tour without Doug. Wow. He's absolutely destroyed. Uh, the record label actually downgraded him credit-wise and gave him a guitar credit only while he wrote the majority whoa, of the songs. Whoa, that sucks. Yeah. So yeah, he I is, mean that. Well, yeah, it sucks. And then, but but on top of that, if he wrote the songs, I mean, he probably if, if he could prove he did it, he probably has the basis of a successful lawsuit. I'm thinking. Yeah, and that's that's what leads us to what happens next. So. What I want to do is share a song first, and this is a song about that girl, again, from the R.E.M. concert that we talked about. Uh, this is, of course, from New Miserable Experience, one of the most notable songs on the album, which is Found Out About You. And, you know, when you hear this, really listen to those lyrics, because it does drive home that sort of, again, he was just dealing with all this pain and this heartache, and he just poured it into these songs, and here it is. I'm going to play it for you. This is Found Out About You from the Jim Blossoms.
So a song seven years in the making finally reaches millions of people on New Miserable Experience. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So like we said, Doug had paid his dues at this point and he had given everything to the Gin Blossoms. He had no other job. He was penniless. Now, TJ, you had said something at the break that he may have some legal ground to stand on. Well, the record company contacted him and basically said, you can get this money for this album but only if you sign over your stake in the band. So they're, 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 they're basically legal blackmail almost. Essentially. Yes. Yeah. Saying you can take this now. Or yeah. Oh, sure. I mean, you can, uh, you know, you could sue us and, you know, yeah. good luck beating our attorneys, our million dollar attorneys in court that it'll take forever. Or, you know, you can just, just, just uh, do what we tell you to and we'll give you some, some cash. That, that's kind of what they're what the game they're playing now yeah and pretty much what doug did is he took it he had no option and so he got paid basically fifteen thousand dollars for an album that went gold immediately and would go Ugh. on to sell over two million copies jesus in that's that awful sucks. Uh, God, that's that's exploitation i mean that's te- uh, that's horrific it's awful but i mean he that he he these are he wrote the majority of the songs right yeah absolutely and played guitar yeah. And played guitar. Man. There was sort of a, a discrepancy over his guitar credit. And Doug basically said, no, I played on those songs. And while there was no legal ruling on it, the whole thing was basically backed off by the record company. Because when you hear that album and the next album, you can tell the guitar work is different. And it's right. better on New Miserable Experience. So Doug is back in Tempe and he soldiers on. He finds another band called The Eventuals. Yep, mm. with a uh, yeah local musician named Brian Blush. I mean, it's it's no Eternal Triangle, but yeah, unfortunately that band doesn't really last. But Doug does what he does best and creates another band, the Chimeras, where he joins a okay. local vocalist. I'm sorry, the yeah. Chimeras is a great name. It is, yeah, because you know what it is. It's a monster. It's a cryptid. Yeah. It's a monster. Mm-hmm. It is two creatures basically a... shoved together. What is what is that one? It's a chimera. Chimera. It's a mythical beast. Okay. It's, and it's in like in the world of the cryptids. It's uh, it's kind of like a a griffin, or it's it's weird because it's it's kind of its own thing, but it's supposed to be kind of a a puggle of <laughs> creatures. It's like, <laughs> like creatures. Yeah, right? it's it's a bunch of creatures shoved together. But that's a, that's a chimera. It's not real. It's or it's real, and uh, we just don't know it yet. So with the Chimeras, Doug does find another band. They start playing around Tempe, and the good thing is he's sort of a hometown celebrity at this point. Everyone's hearing this song, and it's a Doug song, and the people love him so he can get gigs, and he actually goes back to South by Southwest in March of 93. The problem is it's constantly compared to the Gin Blossoms. And while he's doing all this stuff, his songs on the radio, the band appears on David Letterman. These guys who he was so close with are nowhere to be found, and his depression just spirals. He wrote one of the best-selling albums of that time. And again, the record label cut him out. He's trying to shop around new songs, can't gain any traction. So he's back on the booze. And it's getting to the point where people would ask him, How are you feeling today? Doug would hold up his hand and it would be shaking, and he would just respond with Gibraltar. Jesus As in the rock. Good God, that's awful. He is 31 years old. He does, yeah, he does try to clean up. 
He calls getting sober the bravest thing he ever did. And he would go on and come off. He would have withdrawal symptoms. He would be clean for a few days and he would break it. He actually broke out of a detox ward in Phoenix to go drink. So he is battling this like there's no tomorrow. His one saving grace is his girlfriend named Sandra, who actually made every effort to support his sobriety. And both she and the doctor told Doug the same thing. They said, you can drink or you can live. Wow. And even with that advice, Doug still found himself sneaking out at night to get that fix. It's just, it's horrible. Well, I'm, I, yeah. I just want to say that, I, I really want to say this really quick. Um, so um, I know someone who went to rehab and when, when she went into rehab, they actually took everything from her that had any kind of alcohol in it. So they, they took away her hairspray. They took away her nail polish remover. Uh, what else did they take from her? That's, they just, with anything, that, anything, that, yeah. anything that was possibly based in alcohol, they would take away from her. And, yeah. And I think that's just what you have to do. You have to remove and, everything that is a trigger for you. Sure. But the, the other thing is, is, you know, they, they say you can either, you know, live or drink, but you can't do both. Yeah. I'm sure he, I'm sure he really wanted to live. Oh, absolutely. He, his intention and his heart. Yeah, you're right. You're you're right. And I have to stop. This just it's almost. But when you're breaking, when you have that knowledge and you you know that they're right and you don't want to die, um, and you're breaking out like literally breaking out of a detox center to go drink. It's it's a compulsive thing. Like you, I mean, it's out of your hands. Like he literally. You, I hear that. It's so sad. He can't stop. No, he can't. No, I mean. That you would think, okay, well, you're you're in you're locked up in detox now. He broke out. Yeah, I, I mean, think about how bad you need it or want it, or how bad the compulsion is within you. That I, uh, it's just, I, no, I've just got no, I, I I can't help it. That you're Perfect. literally breaking out of detox to go drink. It's terrifying. Yeah. Uh, you know, I yeah, say, and I, it is terrifying. And I will say this: I used to have. You guys know I used to smoke cigarettes, and it was a severe compulsion yeah. that I would do. I would, you know, I put jobs in jeopardy because I would want a cigarette so bad. One time I was like at the airport and I really wanted a cigarette so bad. That I was like, okay, if I break out of this door that goes to the tarmac, I might be able to have a cigarette for 30 seconds before the TSA tackled me. Like, that's how bad it was. Yeah, <laughs> it's a compulsion. Yeah. yeah, it's a severe compulsion. I'm not saying that, that an addiction to cigarettes is anywhere near an addiction to alcohol or you know, drugs or anything like that. I'm just, it is an addiction and, and people do lose things over. And in the end, cigarettes can kill you. So I'm, I'm mm. glad that I don't smoke anymore, but I, I understand. It, well, I, you know, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to disagree with you a tiny bit. It, that it, it is very comparable. It's just, what is the result and how quickly does it come? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's not there's not a physical difference between being addicted to nicotine or caffeine or alcohol or heroin. But what what but what which one is going to hurt you more, especially in the in the very short term? Yeah, yeah. I mean, caffeine's not good for you. Right. Nicotine's not good for you, but it's ta- yeah. you're talking about a long term thing where down the line it might make you sick. Yeah. Whereas with alcohol or heroin, I mean, it's destroying your liver and destroying your kidneys and wrecking your nervous system. And you, you know what I mean? It's just yeah. they're they're I mean they're they're definitely on par with one another. 
And please, for, for our for our audience, please understand that we are laymen in this this department. We we are not medical doctors. We we are not social workers. We don't deal with this stuff. So what we're speaking is literally what we know of. So please and and from and from personal experience and yeah. experience of relatives and and stuff like that and friends. But yeah, it's it's not it's not something that we can speak of in medical terms. Just know that we. We have all been touched by addiction in some way. Yeah. But I don't have my doctorate quite yet. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. maybe in the next 20 years. <sighs> so he's on again. He's off again. Uh, when he's off, he's apparently remarkable. He's writing songs. He's getting up early, calling the record labels, shopping his material. And when he's off, it's really bad. He's actually attempting suicide. So he is in pimps. Um, it's thwarted by either a botched attempt or by his girlfriend, Sandra, who he called his angel. Uh, his depression hit an all-time low in April of 93. Doug botched a solo on stage at a local music festival. Afterwards, he said he's going to quit the chimeras. He's done. The very next day, Doug goes back and says, I didn't mean it. Please let me back in the band. Only to be told by Lauren Zubia, the person he co-founded the band with, we're sorry, Doug, we're moving in a different direction without you. And all the while this is happening, the Gin Blossoms are on the radio. They're touring the country. His songs are everywhere. He's pretty convinced at this point that he's not going to make it as a songwriter. One of the quotes he would throw out kind of flippantly was, I'll be a hack like Roger and 101 Dalmatians. That was what he would say. That's actually quite a deep cut. It is. Yeah. Roger, yeah. Roger wrote jingles Mm-hmm. in 101 Dalmatians. Yeah. Also, why do I know the jobs of Roger in 101 Dalmatians? Yeah, but he pulled it out like that. I yeah. Mean, again, he's, his brain is no, Ooh. no, not dulled by this at all. That's the thing is he's he's writing these incredible yeah. songs. He's an incredible lyricist. Not only that, but he kind of taught himself the guitar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, bass and, and uh, you know, it's sad because he seems like he's such a genius. Yeah. And it's like no one will give him a shot. Like it's and genuinely talented, and it's just being undermined by things that, that are a little out of his year that are out of his control, unfortunately, by this time. Yeah, and again, it's it's all falling apart, and and that is what ultimately culminates the fall of 1993. He goes into the bar, he sees Robin, and that's where all his aggression goes, and that's in Long Longs, in the autumn of 1993. By November of 93, Doug was living by himself in Tempe, Arizona. He did receive a gold record for New Miserable Experience. He hung it on the wall for two weeks before he destroyed it. He was about to be evicted from his apartment. His girlfriend, Sandra, was really the only lifeline he had. In a last-ditch attempt to get sober, he admits himself for an intake at St. Luke's Hospital in Phoenix, Arizona to the detox ward. On December 4th, 1993, Doug leaves a detox ward and purchases a 38 caliber pistol. What I'm about to read you is a transcript of the last phone call he made on the night of December 4th to Brian Smith, the writer of the Moucho Times, who was at that point in Detroit, and here's how the call went. This is Doug starting off the call. This is it. Huh? Doug? What is it? This is it. I'm going to off myself. What? I mean it. Doug. Language warning. What the fuck are you talking about? I'm going to off myself. What? Are you pissed because I haven't paid you the $300 back yet? No. It's Christmas time. Forget it. Anyway, I won't be needing it. Shit, it'll fund your Christmas eggnog, you bastard. Come on. 
I'm done. What about Sandra? She deserves better. Bullshit. Let's go down to that whorehouse in Nogles. Remember that time? You just held that girl in your arms and paid $70 for the privilege. It's that time of year, dude. Yeah. You gotta move. And think about it. Kids around the country are singing your songs. You got what you always wanted. You should be celebrating. It was good knowing you. Doug hung up the phone. At some point between the night of December 4th and December 5th, Brian received another phone call from one of Sandra's friends. Brian, Doug's dead. Doug put the 38 caliber pistol in his mouth and pulled the trigger. His body was discovered fully clothed with $458 stuffed in the pocket. That was all the money he had. He was 32 years old. After Doug's death, he was cremated. His remains were scattered at the Ash Avenue Bridge in Tempe, Arizona. The year following Doug's death, a New York-based law firm took up the case to represent the Hopkins estate. They found 18 of the songs he wrote were open for future record deals. Today, it is estimated that Doug would have a projected net worth of almost $5 million. Wow. And died with 400, 400 some odd dollars in his pocket. His pocket and nothing in his bank account. Emmy award-winning documentary filmmaker Mark Stanox secured the rights from the estate to do a biopic on Doug. The film was secured in 2000 with the attachment of star Ethan Hawke to play Doug Hopkins. Oh, wow. But unfortunately, it stalled out. It went into development hell and nothing came of it. As for the gin blossoms, they were wrecked when Doug passed. When asked about it, Robin Wilson said letting Doug go was the hardest thing that they ever had to do. There was a four-year gap between their albums. The next release in 1996 was in honor of Doug, and the album was titled Congratulations, I'm Sorry. From there, the Gin Blossoms would cut three more albums from 2006 up to 2018. They took a hiatus in 1997 and 2001 and would continue to work on various side projects and actually remain together to this day. The current members of the Blossoms include Robin Wilson, Bill Lean, Jesse Valenzuela, Scott Johnson, and Scott Hessel. At the time of this recording, they are scheduled to tour in 2021. Robin points out that they play Hey Jealousy at every single show. He said, there is not a day that goes by where we don't think about Doug. That's the song we're going to end on, folks. Uh, I guarantee you'll never hear it the same way again. There's a head-bopping, poppy rhythm to it, and those 90 guitar licks that you can't forget, but underneath that is the real, raw pain of a true artist, and that artist was Doug Hopkins. He's one of so many that we've lost. Some of the others we've mentioned, you know, on this podcast and not include Kurt Cobain, Michael Hutchins, Keith Flint, Avicii, Elliot Smith, Wendy Williams, Jill Janis, Butch Trucks, and Chris Cornell. And those are only the ones you hear about because they're famous. According to the World Health Organization, Almost 800,000 people take their life every year. That is, that is staggering. So I told you we'd tell you about the true villains in this story, and I think we know who they really are. And I would be remiss if I didn't provide you with the information that comes next. And due to the nature of this episode, I'm actually not going to be giving out any of our socials this week. They will be in the show notes because... Yeah. Will has a more important. You, you, if you want to get a, a, a you, you just give that number out. That's about the the population of the state of Wyoming. Yeah, every year. Uh, I mean, I, I yearly. I mean, I mean, think 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 about what I just said. 
entire state. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the, that's about the population of the state of Wyoming. Man. So two numbers I'll provide you. Again, LD, thank you for that. First is 1-800-662-4357. Again, 1-800-662-4357. That is the National Addiction Hotline. You can call it 24-7. The second is the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Again, 800-273-8255. As we close out here, I just want to say that we admitted how unprepared we are to talk about these subjects but these are people that can and i remember when chris cornell passed the way they framed it on 95.5 will i will never forget and it was on jonesy's jukebox and he covered cornell's death really minute by minute throughout everything that was happening and he said that he can't imagine a more terrifying situation where it's an empty room there are no doors and no windows and the only way out is a rope or a bottle of pills, or a gun. That is terrifying. And I guess what we're trying to say is, you know, to Doug and all of those out there, there is a way out. Please reach out, you know, use these sources. There's always someone that's willing to listen because as long as we are doing this podcast, we are an ear for you guys. We're here. So on that note, I do want to, first of all, thank Christine for providing the initial, you know, our entry to the subject. I, I had no idea. Thank I had you. no idea. Thank you so much, Christina. And you guys, again, please reach out and have a dialogue with us. We, we love this. And the last thing I'll say is thank you to Doug Hopkins. You know, you did what so many wanted to achieve and the timing couldn't have been worse. And I think what you need to hear is that your songs are still being played today. They are still reaching yeah. Your songs are still out there. Your legacy is still out there. So thank you, Doug, for, for writing those songs and sticking with us. And you guys want to sign off before we play the final song of our podcast today. I think you said it all. Thanks, guys. Yep. Good night, Good night everybody. Good night.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 